What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Journey here on Wednesday nights. We're very grateful that everyone is here tonight. It's wonderful to see your beautiful, shining faces. I know that a lot of you guys uh, may have kids. Uh, first day of school, we've got a, a teacher here today. So glad to be back. Summer was so boring, right? You just can't wait to get back in the classroom. Uh, should we just like pray for those students and teachers right now? Lord, just lift them up right now during their hardship and turmoil. Amen. <laughs> but seriously, pray for them. Pray for, uh, pray for their teachers. Uh, we hope that this is a good school year. I'm excited for fall. Anyone else excited? My wife informed me that uh, I think it was today or yesterday was the first day of pumpkin spice lattes at uh, Starbucks and stuff, PSL, hashtag PSL. Uh, an interesting thing about my wife is that six years ago on this exact date, I was giving a sermon here at Journey of the Church, but we were actually at the, the Boys and Girls Club. And during that sermon, I was so romantic, I got down on one knee and proposed to her during the sermon. And uh, she said it's the best sermon she's ever heard. But uh, that was six years ago. Time flies when you're having fun. Well, you know who don't have, you know who does not have a lot of fun? Are cops. Cops. But we love cop shows. You know, I, I love cop shows. Um, not so much chips, that's not really my generation, uh, but I like Law and Order. You know, you guys ever seen Law and Order with all the investigation and the mystery? You know what I'm talking about, right? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, yeah, yes. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate and yet equally important groups. The police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. You didn't know that was coming. Should we do that one more time for good measure? These are their stories. They'd be sitting there in the interrogation room. It looks all grimy and, and graffiti-laden. And, uh, and there in the middle of the room, there's this, this metal table surrounded by these flimsy aluminum chairs. And they're sitting on one of these flimsy aluminum chairs is the accused. There he sits, his handcuffed to the, the metal table in the center of the room, and he just looks menacing. While outside the room, you've got the detectives. They're looking in through this one-way window, and they're having a conversation to themselves. Hey, you want something to eat? Some hot dogs and water? Maybe some meatballs too? And they discuss, how do, how do we go about this? You know, how, how do we investigate this? The other one turns to him and says, hey, I got this idea. Let's do the good cop, bad cop thing, eh? That's how cops talk, if you don't know. Yeah, good cop, bad cop. So they go in, they bust in through the door, the lock slides open while the, the accused is just sitting there examining his silver bracelets. All of a sudden the door bursts open and they, they waltz in with this no-nonsense flair of the dramatic. And they, they throw their, their envelope full of evidence there on the table. It startles the accused. And then they pull up one of those flimsy aluminum chairs. They spin it around and they plop down on it backwards, of course, right? And then they, they lean in. They say, okay, Jimmy, 
Give it to me straight. Well, that's what our passage is like in the Gospel of John tonight. Previously in the Gospel of John, Jesus healed a man who was born blind, and he does so with his saliva. He makes this saliva, mud bath, eye mask mixture, rubs it on his eyes, tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and he then regains his sight for the very first time in his life. And even before the healing occurs, there's this extended discussion about, well, how come this man was born blind? Was it his sin or was it the sin of his parents? And Jesus, he doesn't even go for this whole, like, uh, who sinned, this being born blind, is it because of sin view? No, he, he views this as an occasion for the power of God to be seen in the life and also in the struggle of this blind man. So while it seems that this blind man's struggle, his blindness, is God's displeasure, Jesus actually sees it as an opportunity for God's grace and God's power. Now, this all happened to happen on the Sabbath, the day that's dedicated for rest. You know, you, you commit this day to the Lord. No work was to be done. So you know the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, who were very passionate about God and very passionate about the law, but they often got those two things out of order a little bit. You know the Pharisees were all in a tiff about this. They interrogated this previously blind guy and said, who healed you? And the previous blind guy said, well, I was blind. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't see, you know. But uh, in reality, he actually just tells them, I, I think he must be a prophet. You know, he never saw Jesus with his two eyes, at least not yet. Our section tonight is part two and part three of the investigation. So if you would stand with me, please, tonight. We stand here to revere the word of God. John chapter 9, we'll read verses 18 through 19 to begin. It says, The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called in his parents. They asked him, Is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? Lord, we want to see. Lord, some of us here tonight, we might feel like the blind man. We just don't see your work in our lives or, or we don't see your work in our world. And we ask, Lord, to see you in a new way. We ask for spiritual sight, for spiritual insight, to understand your ways, to know you better, to follow you better. That's what we've come here to do tonight, to open up your word and to hear from you and from you alone. So we ask, Lord, you speak to us in a powerful way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So they're in the interrogation room here, and uh, they ask, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? I mean, did the man go to the optometrist? Did he get his eyes checked out? Did he get LASIK laser eye surgery? Did, did he get a corneal transplant? But his parents reply in verses 20 through 23, We know this is our son and that he was born blind. But we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. 
He's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's what they said. He is old enough. Ask him. They don't roll on him. They don't snitch on him. They don't rat him out because they're scared themselves of being kicked out of the synagogue. You know, it's their family, their friends, their community. It's their lifestyle. It's everything. They don't roll on him. They don't snitch on him. They don't rat him out, but they actually, they actually don't stand up for him either. They don't stand up for their son. Why? Well, sometimes it's hard to stand up to your leaders or your community or your family or your friends. A wise man once said, it takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to your enemies, but a great deal more to stand up to your friends. Let's talk about this tonight in our tables. Let's, let's address the following questions. Do you find it difficult to stand up to your leaders, community, family, friends? Why or why not? And then secondly, where might God be calling you to take a stand for him with your leaders, community, family, and friends? Ready, go. So in the text, we find out that the blind man's parents, the blind man's parents, they don't roll on him, but they don't stand up for him either. Verse 24 says, So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get glory for this. In other words, tell the truth. Because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. It's like on those cop shows, you know, they call in this previously blind guy for some more questioning. Are they charging him? Is he a person of interest, a suspect? And here's the moment. It's like the Pharisees are the detectives who waltz in with that no-nonsense flair for the dramatic. They take that envelope and slam it down on the table full of evidence. They, they pull up that metal chair and spin it around and sit down on it backwards of course, and then they get in his face and say, okay, previously blind guy, give it to me straight. Give it, there it is. We got this file on this guy, Jesus. Some say he's a prophet. Some say he's Elijah. Some say he's John the Baptist. Some say he's the son of God. Here's what he is, a sinner. But the previously blind guy responds in verse 25. I don't know whether he's a sinner, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. You know, you and I, we might not be able to articulate cool accents or something like that. We might not be able to articulate uh, the intricate details also of theology or the understandings of Christology or, or the ins and outs of atonement or sanctification or justification or eschatology or ecclesiology or soteriology or pneumatology. But if Jesus has touched our lives, we can and should always be ready to testify about the change that he has done in our lives, right? Always. I don't know, but there's some days where I'm like, ah, 
I don't really want to do that. That might be uncomfortable. Not really feeling up for this, God. And then there's those other days you feel like supercharged, like the gospel is just there and you're, you're, you're suited up in the whole armor of God and you don't care about anyone. And then you, you finally talk to that first person. You're like, whew, that was enough for today, God, right? But no, in reality, we can and should always be ready to testify about that change. But at the same time, this doesn't mean that we should stop our, our pursuit of that heart and mind learning about God and the things of God. After all, those big word theological concepts are, are actually easy to learn concepts about God, easy to learn about us and about our world if we're willing to put in that heart and mind learning time. But nothing seems to grip us more than the stories about how God works in other people's lives. Nothing seems to grip us more than hearing about real-life people who experience God in a real-life way, real-life humans who can say, I was blind, and now I can see. And that's not just about our sight. That's about our spiritual sight. That's about us as human beings in our relationship with God. I was blind, and now I can see thanks to Jesus. I want to do a little bit more table talk tonight. Who's ever been on an elevator before? Hopefully uh, many of you guys have been outdoors before and, you know, you've been on an elevator in some sort of a building. Uh, elevators go up and down different floors, and sometimes you're trapped in an elevator uh, for like 30 seconds or less with individuals. What I want us to do is imagine you're, you're trapped on an elevator and you have 30 seconds or less to talk to the people around you. Maybe you should try this, but give an elevator speech, a 30-second or less description of your testimony. That is how you came to faith in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus. Make it short, sweet, and to the point, as if you were only going up a few floors in an elevator. So I'm going to give you a little bit more time so everyone has an opportunity to do this if they'd like. All right? Ready, go. All right, let's wrap it up. It's supposed to be 30 seconds or less. I can do math, too. I'm not very good at math, but I can do math. In 30 seconds or less, divided by how many people are at your table, I can tell who's long-winded. <laughs> but a couple things about, uh, about these elevator speeches. Christians often like to talk in a different language than other human beings. And that's okay if we're in the church and you're talking about glorious, elevated, heavenly things. But when you're giving an elevator speech to someone who has like no idea about God and, and you come at them and you're like, man, I was saved by grace through faith at the communion of God's love that just embraced me and sanctified me and is making me complete in discipleship and all, you go on and on and on. They're like, what is he talking about? So we always have to figure out and make sure, are we speaking in terms that they would actually understand? I learned this for the first time when we went to Slovakia on a missions trip. I was 18 years old, and I realized, like, you can't even say something like, I got saved when I was this age. Because they're like, well, what, from what? Like, what, what do you mean saved? What does that even mean? And so it, it causes us to consider our language and maybe break it down in a a different way that's more digestible or understandable for people who have no biblical basis or whatever. Uh, now, the second thing, you all just shared your 30-second or less elevator speech, and so you can go do it out in the world now, right? Yeah. 
Amen or no? All right, no, okay, you don't have to. You don't have to follow Jesus with your whole life or whatever, but that's cool. Anyways, uh, let's continue here. The pre- maybe after the message, you'll be more inspired to go and share that message with the world. The previously blind guy, he gives his testimony, and it's short and sweet. It's to the point, it's eight words in English in the NLT translation. It's actually just four words in Greek, tuflas on arti blepo. I was blind, and now I can see. That's it. We got David, David Jackson Jr. up here. He gave like the shortest one, and it was like, boom, right to the heart. And I loved hearing it, listening in on this group. And the Pharisees will listen in later. But this is what verses 26 through 27 says. But what did he do? They, that is the Pharisees, asked, how did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples too? Dang, son, where does this man's sudden boldness come from? Obviously his relationship with Jesus. That's the boldness that's going to empower you to give your elevator speech outside the walls of this church. It's not your own strength. Of course you're not ready to do that. But by the power of God and the spirit of God, you can go and do that. Well, this is what the uh, holy religious leaders, the polite and concerned with Sabbath observing, the upstanding, righteous religious leaders respond with. Verses 28 through 29. Then they cursed him. Beep. They cursed him. That's what that means. They heaped insults on him. The Greek word simply means to insult strongly. Or to slander. Apparently, they did not appreciate the invitation to become disciples of Jesus. They cursed him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Previously blind guy responds to this line of questioning in verses 30 through 33. Why, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. So previously blind guy here, he not only possesses a sense of humor, but he's also got common sense. He's blown away by the view of the Pharisees, by this reality that they can't see or they refuse to see that Jesus has come from God. Their unbelief, even with the truckloads of evidence right there before them, is inconceivable to this previously blind guy. He's correct in his understanding here that that he not only possesses a sense of humor, he not only possesses common sense, but biblical understanding. He's correct in understanding how Scripture records no former healing of a person who's born blind. Evidently, Jesus had not healed anyone in this condition previously either. So he concludes that Jesus must have come from God. He cannot be the sinner that the Pharisees say that he is. And it's sad that the Pharisees don't even know their own Scriptures. I guess they forgot or they choose to forget 
those passages in Isaiah 29:18, 35:5, and 42:7 that says, "When the Messiah comes, he will open the eyes of the blind." Maybe they should do some more homework, more study on that. Well, the Pharisees, they let their own pride and their own emotions get the best of them. They resort to more potty mouth name-calling. Verse 34, you were born a total sinner. Sounds like my sister when we used to argue. I would never sound like that. But my sister, you know, it's your turn to do the cat litter. No, it's your turn to do the cat litter. Turns out it was actually her turn to do the cat litter. And she responds with, well, you're stupid. What does that have to do with the cat litter? You're stupid. You know, one time she even called me a dum-dum. And we both laughed our heads. Did you just really call me a dum-dum? Now, since I'm a pastor, I use more theological language. Like, get behind me, Satan. Or, you know what, let, let me just pray for you right now. How about I pray for you? You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. Previously, blind guy gets kicked to the curb. He lost his synagogue privilege because he took a stand for Jesus. That's called persecution. And if as Christians we're not facing any sort of persecution... Maybe we should look at our lives and see, are we living faithfully radical enough? Previously blind guys, excommunicated, split from his family, his friends, his community, his leaders, his lifestyle, everything because of Jesus. A Jesus he's never physically seen, but a Jesus that he has experienced. And I think that's just, it sounds a lot like faith, and it sounds like it speaks a lot to us Today, we haven't seen Jesus with our own two eyes, but maybe we've experienced him. And maybe we've experienced him enough to realize that any sort of persecution or ridicule or even awkward conversations, they're all worth it because he's worth it. Verse 35 through 38 says, When Jesus heard what was happening, he found the man and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshipped Jesus. He worshipped Jesus. What, did he like break out a guitar and and call the worship band up on stage and start worshipping? No. No, he he worshipped him. He fell down prostrate with an R before him. The Greek verb is proskuneo. It means to fall down before, to prostrate with an R, that is, to worship. I'll let you catch up. I'll let you catch up. Anyways, inside Jeff gets it. I mean, maybe it's just not funny. Anyways, it's actually a combination, proskuneo, of two Greek words. Pros, which means like two or towards, and kuneo, which is to kiss. So in essence, this kiss is the kiss of the ground or the feet when you're bowing down to a superior. It actually might, might be related to the word kuon, which means a dog, like the way a dog would lick a, their master's hand. We, we bring our dog Penny to Starbucks, and anyone in the vicinity gets to experience her falling down at your feet, rolling over for a tummy rub, and licking you to death. 
That's in a sense what this man is doing, minus the licking Jesus to death, but falling down with great humble adoration and love for Jesus. That's what this person does. He meets Jesus for the first time, who, who had experienced, uh, this man has experienced a great transformation. He falls down at Jesus' feet. But the thing about this proscuneo is that it's something that's due to God alone. So we just learned about something here about Jesus, that he's God. And what else, you know, does he do in response to this man? What does he do in response to this man who falls down at his feet and is worshiping him? Jesus does nothing. Nothing to stop the man from doing so. Let's do some more table talk. One more question tonight. How do you worship Jesus? And I don't, I don't just mean like, what's your worship position? You know, hands raised or arms folded or holding a cup of coffee or whatever it is. But how do you worship Jesus? Not just musically, but with your life. And then do you think he is honored by the way that you worship? Whether that's musically or whether that's by the way you live your life. Why or why not? Ready, go. You know, do you think that Jesus is honored by the way that you worship? That's a tough question. It's a tough question to, you know, look in the mirror and say, am I really worshiping Jesus as I should be, as, as he certainly deserves? Probably not. And I hope you weren't like, yeah, I worship Jesus, Jesus just like he deserves, more than he deserves, right? No, hopefully not. But I think about this, and one of the things that I like to do when, when, I'm, when it's like musical worship or something like that, when, when the band is playing or whatever, just act like you're singing right in front of God. You know, act like he's right there in front of you. And, you know, who cares what, uh, you know, if you're at a Hillsong concert or if it's some guy with a kazoo up here, you know, if God is present, then that's all that matters. And God, God is everywhere. So uh, make sure you're singing like you're singing to God. And then don't worry about the people around you. you know, some of my favorite times of worship were when I just forgot about the people around me. I'm just like, all right, I don't care what this guy thinks or this girl thinks or, or they think or whatever it is. Like it's, it's not a singing contest. If it is, we're, you know, we've lost it. It should be a heart contest, right? Like, like we're not competing. We're, we're just trying to sing and praise. And I mean, do you come to church on Sunday saying like, I'm going to be the best worshiper I can possibly be for God today. That's why I've come here today to celebrate and worship God. That's a good way to come to church. That's probably a proper and right way to come to church. And then just forget about, forget about the things for a moment. And let's focus, like Jeff said earlier, on an audience of one. Because that's what we're doing, right? And I think if we were to judge this church as a measure, as are we a worshiping church? And I don't just mean like musically and stuff, but just all around, are we a worshiping church? I'd say, yeah, I think we are a worshiping church. Can we improve? Definitely. We can definitely improve. And let's continue to build in that. You know, Foss, we kicked him out. He's gone to Tennessee. You know, couldn't stand the guy. I'm just kidding. I love the guy. He called me today. He butt dialed me. And he left this three-minute message. He does this like every week, and it was like a reminder. I'm like, oh, man. Oh, maybe Foss wants to call, you know, talk to me. And I see the voicemail. It's like, <laughs> maybe they don't get service out there in Tennessee. But, uh, you know, with Foss gone, Foss is awesome. 
But now, you know, he's not that awesome, but, you know. No, he's awesome, and he's taught us how to worship. You know, he's taught us how to worship. And in his absence, there's, there's like a gaping hole, right? But not, not I don't mean like personnel-wise, just like there's an opportunity for us as the church to become the worship team. Everybody. I mean, like on a Sunday and on a Wednesday, you are the worship team. It's not just them, those cool people up there. They're awesome, and they will lead us into the throne room of God. But let's do it as a community and see what happens. So anyways, Jesus told them in verse 39 through 41, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Now, it's not talking about physical sight there. Verse 40, some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, Are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. And I think Proverbs 26, 12 closes the case. I think it throws the book at them. There is more hope for fools than for people who think they are wise. When Jesus came into my life and illuminated everything, I realized just how blind I was before, how I didn't see things the way that, that God sees things and the way that, that I even see myself. You know, and if I call my, myself a Christian, and if I don't see in myself an absolute desperate need for Jesus and his spirit, his power, his will, his presence, and that will to change my life and become more like him, if I feel like I'm just fine and dandy and don't need to change, if I feel like I can do it all on my own, then I might just be blind. So our takeaway tonight, don't be afraid to stand up to your leaders, to your community, to your friends and family. Easier said than done, but don't. Don't be afraid. Secondly, don't be afraid to share the work that God has done in your life. Just do it. What's the worst that could happen? You could die. I mean, that's probably the worst thing that could happen. But then you go to heaven, which is the best thing that could happen to you. And then don't be afraid to worship Jesus as he truly deserves. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you love us so much. We want to see. We want to see you in the land of the living. We want to see you work in our lives we want to look to you for all things in all that we are. I pray you would help us to follow you, to see you not to be blind. Help us to share this message as timid and fearful as we might be. Help us to share this message with our lips and with our lives. Help us to love this world one person at a time. As you have loved us, we love you and we praise you. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you so much, everybody. We'll see you on Sunday. Have a great rest of your week.